0: Welcome to The Gaze. My name is Maya Bedward, and I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Aisha Jamal. And you are
1: listening to our third season, second episode. Before we talk about our guests, we want to talk about a subject that kept me up late last night, which is television. Because I think I'm always a person who says I don't watch TV. And I realized that that's actually a lie. And that the reason I don't have a television, but I watch TV through my laptop. Maya,
0: do you watch TV? So I actually have a television, but I don't have cable. I'm usually watching films. I do love certain television, and I think television has gotten far more interesting than it was even five years ago but I generally still watch films
1: you don't have a TV show that you're like addicted to and binge watch
0: not right now but that's because I've just been so busy and I know the minute I start on one I'm gone I watched a little bit of Black Mirror this season
1: which wasn't as good as last season
0: but I've just been so busy that I'm like I don't want to go down that rabbit hole
1: OMG I am so addicted to so many shows it's actually terrible I did finish Black Mirror last night and that's what kept me up late uh, but I've also been watching more Canadian television which I find really a strange turn of events because I was one of those people who also said Canadian TV sucks and it's all like I don't know badly acted underfunded you know fake but then you watch shows like The Handmaid's Tale or Alias Grace both shot in Toronto both with I think actually Handmaid's Tale does not have a Canadian director but other Canadian crew
0: It's kind of funny, like Canadian-American hybrids and when you go to the Canadian Screen
1: Awards films that are like, best Canadian film, but that was an American production. I know, like Maudie. Maudie cleaned up the Canadian Screen Awards, if you watch them at all. And that's a film with Ethan Hawke in it. And he won best actor. And I'm like, wait a minute, he's American. He does not deserve the best Canadian. (laughs) Okay, but I want to challenge you a little bit
0: about how Canadian television only in recent years has become good because I actually, as a kid, Loved watching a lot of Canadian shows. I loved Are You Afraid of the Dark? I know that's a kid's show, but that was an awesome show. I loved, okay, this is, and I think this is an iconic show for even Americans. I loved Degrassi. Degrassi was, it was a game changer. It discussed a lot of issues like HIV, like Uh, child homelessness, like, that you just wouldn't see in any mainstream television. I mean, it was,
1: people had bad makeup, but it was still really, really good. That's the 80s, not the television show's fault. (laughs) You know what? I didn't grow up in Canada, so I didn't spend my formative, like, childhood years here. So that would explain why I don't have the same memories as you. But I did watch Anne of Green Gables. So that was my one Canadian. Tell me it was Canadian, because you're looking at me like it might have been American. It depends which one, but yeah, it was Canadian.
0: But then how can you say it was bad if all you watched was it? I, maybe this is the problem is that like a lot of things with Canadian television are
1: often associated as like Road to La- Avonlea and End of Green Gables and those. I mean, what I mean more is like about three years ago, two years ago, there was a switch in Canadian television quality. What I meant was before then, I think of some shows and I think, I don't want to name them because I don't want to slander anybody, but where I felt like the acting was particularly bad and like some of the writing was really weak and you just kind of felt like, oh, you know, I don't really watch those shows. I watch more HBO. In the last couple of years that has changed. I think Shit's Creek is amazingly well acted. Don't always love every episode, but regardless really liked Alias Grace, really like Handmaid's Tale, some of the hybrids as you call them. So I do think all of a sudden I find myself watching a lot more Canadian TV. There is this misconception that, you know, Canadian film
0: and Canadian television isn't as strong as American film and American television because we live so close to that country we're always being compared. But there's actually a lot of really bad American film and American television. And I think it's just that it's really about a matter of opportunity and how much opportunity there is to work on the craft, to get better, to get things done, to be able to refine the work that you're doing. And I think that in the US, there's just way more opportunity as a director. And as you'll hear later in the show, getting more opportunity to work on different shows. And as a writer, as a producer, you're only going to end up making better work. And I think, yeah, finally, Canada is having a place where there's There's more genres in which you can work in there's more there's I think maybe more opportunity and perhaps that's what's contributing to better
1: production quality which leads us to our two guests today.
0: So we have the great fortune of having Sharon Lee who is a filmmaker here based in Toronto. I met Sharon a few years ago at a showcase where her film Benjamin which was a really critically loved film short film played and she's just such a wonderful woman and when I heard she was part of Women in View's Five in Focus and Two Times More program, I thought we really needed to have
1: her on the show. And we brought back uh, one of the OGs of the fight in the, in the rights for women and women in television and film, Rina Fatticelli. You heard her last episode and she's back to talk about the program that Sharon took part in. And we kind of wanted to focus this episode in asking how as a woman, when you have made short films or maybe have done music videos, how do you then crash the gate of TV? Because TV is where the money is. And it's also where you find today, as Maya and I both have just said really good quality storytelling so we wanted to ask both of these about the program and also ask them a little bit about you know how do you transition from film to TV what are the skills you need what are some of the barriers you face Thank you Sharon and Rina for being here today. We wanted to start with you Sharon and wanted to ask you if you could tell us maybe your genesis story of how you got started in film and if you were always a director.
2: When I was a kid I wanted to be an actor, so I was in school plays and I didn't change my mind until I was an adult, I was in university doing plays, musical theatre and then I directed a play for the first time in university. And then I never acted again. (laughs) So after university, I studied commerce at McGill. So I went into the film and TV industry through production. So I worked as a production manager for almost seven, eight years, but always kind of making films on the side. And then finally got into the CFC, um, went to the director's lab there in 2014 and then have not worked in production since so when
1: you say making films on the side meaning you were self-funding little films you were making that's right yeah Pretty much.
2: I didn't get any grants for anything. I just kind of did it myself. I had, I think, two Indiegogo campaigns for two different films.
0: Is there a moment where you realized, wait a minute, I can do this full time. I can do this professionally. I can be a filmmaker. What was that moment? What was that? Was there a specific event?
2: Well, I didn't know I could do this full time until I got my first Job and I think it was a bit of a leap of faith after the CFC. I knew that you know my identity was changed in the industry. People used to know me as a production manager, as a producer, and then after the CFC, you know, I, I remember going back to Frantic Films where I worked for like four or five years, and the first thing they said to me was like, "Sharon, you're a director now," and I was like, "Okay, well, I guess I'm not getting a job here." <laughs> well, you know, to after the year of not working, and then I just kept telling myself it was a really good. Thing. I mean, it's really difficult to redefine yourself, I think, in our industry. So, this yes, you really, really allowed me to do that. So, that was good. And I think. It is a full-time job to put yourself out there and as a director and take meetings and just, you know, hustle to get in there. So in that sense, I was, it was a full-time thing, but it wasn't feeding me. So I was still doing things on the side. I teach at TIF, and I was working at a friend's stationery store. You know, I, it did whatever it
0: took. And now you're also directing TV. In addition to filmmaking, can you tell us a little about your journey, about how you got into television?
2: After the CFC, I made a short film and then got an agent. And then thanks to the Two Times More program at Women in View, was able to step into the world of TV. And that was really... Amazing because it just, you know, fell at the right time in my career and I had just made this short that people liked and knew about and then Sinking Ship was willing to trust new talent, which is so rare. So they gave me my first shot and then it just kind of went from there.
1: So did you want to make that transition into TV, like consciously? Because I always wonder how directors do this, like visioning of their careers. Like, is it a step by step and you just go from one to the next or were you like, where I really want to go is TV? I feel
2: I feel like this is every director's dream, but maybe it's just my dream. I have always wanted to be a filmmaker that works in TV. To me, filmmaking is, you know, what I do as an artist. And then directing TV is exercising your muscles and like learning from other people. And I mean, it's always a collaboration, but in TV, you're really stepping into somebody else's world and I love this idea that there's all these different directors working on one TV show because we all have to really get into each other's brains. I think that's actually what's most exciting for me as a director is to get
1: into somebody's brain. (laughs) You always get into (laughs) the brain of the person before you or what do you mean?
2: I mean in TV it's mostly the showrunner, So it's their vision and you're kind of coming on to execute that. But you're also coming on to meet this whole crew and cast that's there and already knows you know how things work and you have to come in and kind of earn their trust and show them a fresh perspective as well i love that challenge and that that's really
0: exciting
1: and it pays the bills
0: and it pays the bills
1: yeah (laughs) that's one of the big attractions i think for filmmakers is to think about the fact that if you're doing multiple episodes you're getting paid way more than making one film
2: oh absolutely yeah for sure i don't really expect
1: to make money from my movies yeah that's right but I don't know. Hopefully that's not true. (laughs) And Rina, we wanted to ask you because Women in View does so many things, but one of the things you've done really successfully is launch a couple of programs that focus on women in television. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about why you chose to take that on as an organization. That's a good question.
3: You know, we began with a really, really modest goal to document the absence of women, particularly in creative leadership positions. And we did that on largely a all Volunteer basis for several years. And that was necessary for a while because at that time, we were faced with denial of how bad the situation was. But after I think it was our fifth annual report, it seemed to me, you know, we've established the pattern and the pattern was consistently unchanging. And so I went after some funding to see if we could actually make practical changes that if we needed to convince someone, we had five years of documentation, and now what could we do? The biggest factor in employing women in a number of positions in media was to influence the number of women directors because they tripled the number of women in all of the other areas. So there's really a domino effect going on there. Unlike other programs which just were about bringing somebody in to be mentored or shadow, the director in this model is brought on to a set as your next director right so everybody on set is seeing them as a professional and so on the one hand they're coming out of that with their credit with their reel they've directed television. And where the multiplying effect comes in is anytime that person has a position of power, it's much more likely for a number of reasons, I guess, to attract other women and to empower other women. So it's true, you know, what you point out in a lot of series, all of the other positions are fixed, but they're not always all fixed. And your AD might be more likely to be a woman. And certainly when you translate, and I I think Sharon's in your analysis is right, that television production for years was simply the bread and butter money of people who aspired to be film directors. Now it seems the very opposite is true.
0: Sharon, what was it like your first time on a a TV set? How is it different than some of your film sets? It's a very good
2: question. I think that mostly you're, you're coming on to absorb the information. You're not there to, you know, stop in and like take ownership of everything you're kind of there to figure out what the show is how they work and then bring what you bring
0: The more you work in TV, like, because you were started in children's television and now you're working on Murdoch Mysteries. How does it change from genre to genre? I think it's the same. Ultimately, you know, it's about at the end of the day, it's
2: all about story and performance and getting your day. And with kids, there's greater challenges of scheduling and, you know, less time. Budget is a factor as well. And, you know, it also changes from what the show's formulas are like. Dino Dana was a show that used a crane but we don't have that on Murdoch Mysteries and then Dino Dana always has two cameras but Murdoch Mysteries doesn't and so it's just a different tone I think you just come at it for me at least you come at it from a story point of view, you look at what you need, you look at what the show needs, and then you kind of plan from there. I also come from indie film and I'm still doing indie film where you're scrambling and you never have enough time, you never have enough money. And yes, there is limited time and money in TV as well, but they know their show, so they make it happen and they know they have everything you need.
1: <laughs> what did that program actually allow you to do to get ready for television?
2: Honestly, I think that it's just about being there. You just have to go and look at it. And it's not that different than when you're directing your own stuff. It's just as hard, but it's just as fun and it's hard to explain but I was kind of nervous going in
3: but like after a few days you just kind of get you get it and I mean just to to leap in there how we came to design the program in the way it was was after a a solid year of interviewing and listening to women talking about where they were blocked and one of the places the obvious places they're blocked is the television producers are the busiest people you may ever meet I mean they They just, you know, work from sunup to sunset. So their tendency to go out and look for new talent is limited. And their pace of work is such that they may get all these applications and want to look at them. But, right, so part of it was our bringing together a group of industry professionals to try to select ideal candidates for this particular film at this particular time, knowing that what we wanted to do was build moments. So two times more refers to wanting to double the number of women directing television, scripted television. And what we heard from some of the directors like Sharon afterwards was that coming onto the set, they were, as you were just saying, surrounded by people really invested in their success. And so that was a big thing. Also on, because of that particular show on Dino, Dana, did you work on Dana donate Right. There's high tech equipment. There's VR and there's cranes. And so coming out of it, they had a kind of a, a calling card that carried a lot lot of weight. And so they had this combination of a lot of support, a lot of belief in them right from the get-go, which is not the case when a lot of women do their first television. There's active uh, undermining.
0: When you mention undermining, can you get a little bit more specific? Like what happens in these other types of sets where directors are feeling undermined? Is it the crew? Is it, are
3: it the producers, the showrunner? The stories that I've heard a lot have to do with crew. A little bit to do with, so let's say a typical series of 13 episodes might have used sort of one key director and two or three directors that come on for two episodes, let's say. So what I've heard from the director who didn't get invited back the next year is, oh, I've been displaced by to fill a quota. And so we're dropping the level of quality for the show. I mean, we have significant scientific data to refute that. In fact, quotas tend to raise the quality of the show by getting rid of, you know, competent kind of lifer people. So it's that kind of thing we've heard. But I've heard at least from three or four credible sources, just terrible stories about, you know, asking either the DOP or a key crew member, a key department head to do X, Y, or Z for this effect. And they've just either refused or, or said, no, no, that can't possibly work. And so just solidly suggesting that, We know better than you.
1: You call the program two times more. Can you shock us a bit with stats and tell us how low were the stats that you are trying to fix? So in the first four or five
3: years of the report, essentially we were tracking women, directors, screenwriters and DOPs. In television, there are no female DOPs. There's a couple of exceptions in Quebec, but none in English Canada. And that's like a lot of series, a lot of episodes, a lot of work. For writers, it's certainly better than the other two positions. It varied from uh, like between 28 and 35 percent depending on the year in this this series. So a series like Rookie Blue, for example, would have more women writers because it was created by women. Directors was fairly unchanging at the massive number of 17%. and that's basically the typically the same 17 women <laughs> getting one episode or occasionally two. So it wasn't only that fewer women were directing fewer episodes, but each of those women typically had fewer jobs in the years. You know, the average woman would have one job or 1.3 jobs. The average man would have two and a half to four and a half. In wanting to come up to at least 30%, we've just thought, okay, let's double this. Let's at least try and go out and find 17 women over the course of the next couple of years to really change the culture so that there's a new critical mass. You make it sound so easy sometimes, Rena,
1: when you talk about these things. You're like, we just want to double it to 30, so we thought we should. <laughs> but I mean, your programs are successful, and I feel like, Sharon, maybe you can speak to that. What has two times more done for your career in more concrete terms?
2: I mean, it's very, very concrete. I don't know if I would be directing without this program at all because I haven't made a feature film yet. I'm working towards that. When Murdoch Mysteries called me, I think my agents were surprised. <laughs> I've been directing for 10 years, you know, and just kind of starting to do it for a living. So I do feel really lucky to be in this time and it's,
0: yeah, it's making a huge difference for me. I mean, for me it's everything. Actually, I was talking to a filmmaker who just finished a comedy and then was thinking of doing a drama but the comedy worked so well. His agent was like, don't go, don't go the drama route yet. You're, you need to like kind of prove your chops as a comedy filmmaker? Is there that kind of stuff you think about in terms of strategy for your career? I think that there's a lot of advice out there. And
2: it's hard. I think you get kind of pulled in to all of this different stuff. But I think for me, it depends what your goals are. And for me, I just want to be a storyteller. So At the end of the day, I just come back to my own personal growth. And like, that's all that matters to me is how I can become a better director. So I don't think anyone can tell you what your career is going to look like or what you should or shouldn't be doing. I think you just need to follow what you want to do and what you're interested and passionate about because there's no answers, I think. I don't think anyone has the same path. So to me, it's really about finding what is you and what your voice is and so that people can think of you for the things that you love to do.
3: You made me think, Sharon, Mars Horodyski. when we had these exit interviews after the first two times more, I asked the person who had recommended her for the program why her, and he said, and Sinking Ship also said, she's been persistently, politely, present for about a year, letting us know she's super interested in this show. She loves this show for various reasons and always ends a call when she's kind of asking, are you looking for something? Saying, would you mind if I called again in another month and a half or so? I don't want to bug you. And so they liked that balance between, you know, I'm not whining. I'm not desperate. I love your show. And can I stay on your radar? And so she was the first person they kind of nominated for this.
1: What would you recommend to people who want to be TV directors how do you in some sense get ready for a TV directing gig
2: I think it comes back to you have to keep making stuff you can't I think we have this bad habit of thinking okay we got you gotta get like two short films and then a feature film and then you can be directing TV I think if you made a short film that did really well and you're ready for your feature and it's been five years maybe you need to make another short film you know and I I think that it's not a stepping stone. I think, you know, for me, I'm also, you know, always getting pulled by this, all this advice. And you have to remember why you're doing this in the first place. Like, why are you a filmmaker? If you're a filmmaker, you should be making movies. You shouldn't be waiting around for the next thing. And yes, it is a really (laughs) difficult thing to fundraise for it and, you know, come up with a script. And it is hard. It's very hard, but you kind of have to, keep doing it. How are you
0: balancing making your own independent stuff with working on shows like Murdoch Mysteries with, as you mentioned, developing a feature film? How are you doing it all? I.
2: <laughs> it doesn't feel like I'm doing it all. I feel like I'm doing it because I have to, like I have to do it. I also, I have this, you know, piece of paper in my room that it just says, you know, watch an hour of content every day and write for an hour every day. And I think it's about these small attainable goals. I found that if I told myself, oh, this week I'm going to write full time all week, I'm not going to do any of it. But if I give myself little steps, then I'll just be doing it all the time and I'll be a lot more
1: productive. Good words to end on. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Sharon and Rena, for taking the time to be here. So
0: thank you so much again for tuning into The Gaze. That was Sharon Lee and Rena Fraticelli talking about some of the great programs uh, that Women in View have done to connect emerging or mid-career filmmakers to the television industry, which is ultimately where the money is. And I don't know about you, Aisha, but what I really loved or took away from that conversation was some of the stuff that Sharon was saying in terms of we get so much advice. We get it from our peers, our mentors, agents, the industry. from things people hear (laughs) and Sharon was just really passionate about how it's all about your vision as a director and why you're there and it's really everything should really come back to that and that that should inform your practice and what it is you devote your time to as a filmmaker.
1: Yeah, um, I think it's nice to hear even as filmmakers for you and I. Actually, I wanted to ask you this, Maya. Are you at all interested in directing television? I mean, I I had the
0: great fortune of being mentored under Clement Virgo, who did a lot of really formative uh, Canadian films like Rude. But he also directed The Wire, which, I mean, to have that experience is incredible. And so for me, when I started working in the film industry in Canada, television was always like an incredible place of potential and opportunity because I know Clement had gotten that uh, chance And to direct something as iconic as The Wire and as well-written and well-acted is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because I think it was the reverse for me. I was only a couple of years ago, all of a sudden I had a self-check-in where I was like, wait a minute, I want to direct television. And I think that's like part of my plan for the next few years is to sort of see, okay, I would like to make that transition because you were saying this as well, that good storytelling has migrated or not even migrated, but in some ways is really blossoming on TV. Yeah, I think television's
0: really taken the HBO model where before it was all about being episodic. You know, there wasn't a lot of room for character development. It had to be plot, 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 plot and figure out where the commercials go. But now with On Demand, you can really explore characters Characters, and I think television and television writing has just become longer films. And there's actually far
1: more character development in some of these shows that we see than you'll see in a feature film. Yeah, and I think one of the things I found interesting about the interview we just did is I'm hearing Rena talk about the always shocking statistics about women directing in TV. And it's a thing that I notice. I don't know if you're as obsessed as I am, but when I watch TV shows like Black Mirror, I'm always looking at, well, who's directing these episodes? And I'm not wrong here because I definitely looked at this even yesterday. It's like 85% men. And Jodie Foster directed one of the episodes in this third season and it became big news. And you just think, you know what, it'd be so nice if it wasn't just like primarily guys directing really good television and getting the chance to really, you know, hone their craft and storytelling.
0: Yeah, and I think television really is a place where you can make a living (laughs) as a filmmaker and to actually be practicing your craft every day and not having to do something else to pay the bills will only make you a stronger filmmaker. So getting more women in those positions will just, I mean, amplify the voice of female filmmakers
1: everywhere. So that brings us to what our next episode is going to be about. In our next episode, we're going to continue the conversation, it'll be a bit of a part two of what we talked about today. We wanted to talk to the flip side of this and speak to the people who make the hiring decisions for TV. So we're hoping that we will talk to a production company and continue the conversation around women in TV. You want to learn
0: more about what we talked in the episode today, please visit our website, which is www.thegaysradio.com. And you can also find episodes from previous seasons there as well. You can also download our podcasts on iTunes and Google Play and SoundCloud. So thank you so much for tuning in this season and we will catch you next time.